This is exactly right. If you're like me, you're always looking for a story to dive into. Whether it's a family drama or a mystery to solve, the key to getting hooked is the details. I need rich visuals and intricate storylines. And June's Journey has all of that and more. June's Journey is a mobile mystery game that follows June Parker, a daring young woman, on a quest to uncover the truth about her sister's murder. This is your chance to test your detective skills because you'll play the game as June herself. There are twists, turns, and catchy tunes, all leading you deeper into the thrilling storyline. And if you play well enough, you could make it to the detective club. There, you'll chat with other players and compete with or against them. Find out as you escape this world and dive into June's world of mystery, murder, and romance. It's all just one tap away. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. That's June's Journey. Download the game for free on iOS and Android. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. My name is Pamela Koloff. I'm a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine and a senior reporter at ProPublica. Pam is one of the most wonderful people I know. And this story was really, really important to her. She worked on it for years. I had been covering criminal justice for over 20 years when I found uh, the Joe Bryan case. And what led me there was I had been looking into various causes of wrongful convictions and something that had caught my attention in I can't tell you how many different cases I had looked at or trials I'd sat through uh, was something called bloodstain pattern analysis, which most people are familiar with from the show Dexter. CSI. CSI. And the, the basic idea is that somebody who is highly trained in this quote unquote science, and I put quotes around that because I ask many questions about what this really is, can look at the blood spatters in a crime scene, no other factors in the crime scene, but the blood spatters alone. And they can sort of read it as a text of what happened in the crime. And that can solve crimes and lead to suspects and so forth. Before we get into that, can you tell me a little bit about Joe Bryan's story? So Joe Bryan and his wife, Mickey, lived in Clifton, Texas, which is about a half hour east of Waco in central Texas. It's a pretty rural area. And uh, Joe was the beloved principal of Clifton High School. Just a really, I cannot tell you how many people told me wonderful things about Joe and how much they loved him. He had and still has a very um, outgoing, almost bubbly personality He knew every kid by their first name. He was deeply, deeply involved in their lives, Uh, as was Mickey. So Mickey was a fourth grade teacher at Clifton Elementary School. She was a much more reticent, sort of shyer person. 
Um, but they work together really well as a couple. A lot of people describe them to me as a team. A lot of women commented on this in sort of um, a very admiring way. Like they work together in a way that they didn't see other couples work together. They were not able to have children and that fact really bonded them and their children sort of became the kids that they taught. And so if a kid was having trouble at home or uh, didn't have lunch, didn't have food, they stepped in and took care of those problems. So they were very, very beloved members of the community. And what did you know about their personal life, of course, before all this happened? So one of the things that was so interesting about this case is that I literally could not find one person who could tell me anything bad or troubling that they had ever seen about this marriage. They would usually end the day around five o'clock by walking around Clifton hand in hand, and they would stop and they would talk to friends and visit with them before going home and having dinner. And then they would grade papers together and they were just a very tight-knit duo. No one could remember them ever having an argument or any frustration at all with each other. So as somebody who's married, I'm often tiny, tiny suspicious of that because it's really hard to believe that that no one has ever seen any sort of tension. Can we just go ahead and take that as as, for face value, you think? So I think, here's why I think we can. And I'll, I'll say, of course, we never know what goes on behind closed doors, of course. But it was such a small community. I mean, I really cannot get across... You know, when I would go to interview people there, everybody would know I was in town. I mean, there were just, I don't mean there are no secrets. Of course, that's not true. But with both of them having such public jobs, being around people constantly, Joe was on call in one way or another, six, seven days out of the week. He was working like every Friday night football game, he's in the stands talking to all the families. It was such a a glass house that they lived in. And so I'm sure there there were their tensions. It didn't seem like there were any big secrets that they were hiding. Did you go into this case with any sort of preconceived notions or, I mean, you know, when you do anything like this, is this, is this, are you letting the evidence take you where it goes? I'm assuming yes. Definitely. And as I'll explain in a moment, because Mickey is the person who was the the victim of this murder, obviously the very first person you're going to look at is the husband. And I don't have the statistics in front of me, but of course, overwhelmingly in these kinds of cases, the woman's partner is the perpetrator. So quite naturally, uh, it makes sense to really scrutinize Joe and to really look at what motive he might have had or, and what opportunity he might have had to, to commit this crime. So let's talk about the crime and take it from whenever, however far back you need to. So Joe went out of town. This was in October of 1985. He went about an hour and a half away to Austin and he went to attend a principal's convention. This was something that all these principals did back then. And uh, he was in Austin for a couple of days. And during that trip on the night of October 15th, Mickey was murdered in their home, in their bedroom. She was shot four times. And it was, as you can imagine from how I've described this town, just completely shocking uh, uh, and sort of an unbelievable event 
This was a woman who was a very shy, mild-mannered person with no enemies. Everyone loved Mickey. No obvious motive for any such thing. Because of all these reasons and because of the fact that Joe was out of town, the initial investigation sort of began from the point that this was a botched robbery. And one thought I always had was, with Joe being such a public figure, that people at the high school would have known that he was out of town. And maybe they thought that Mickey went with him and that this was a good house to hit, right, for a robbery. That's just my my little theory. But Joe was not a suspect for the first week of this investigation. And there were, in fact, no suspects. There, were, there was virtually no uh, physical evidence of any kind to look at, no fingerprints that could be discerned. The murder weapon was a gun that was already in the house. Like many people in rural Texas, they owned a gun. And so there was no obvious place to look as to who had done this. Who is investigating this case? Is it Waco or Clifton or? Uh, It's local law enforcement, but within maybe an hour of Mickey's body being found, the Texas Rangers are called in. Uh, The Texas Rangers are as some listeners may know, a rather elite law enforcement force here that's sort of like our FBI. And uh, an investigator named Joe Wiley was brought into the case. And again, in those early days, um, they, they did some really rudimentary questioning of Joe, but it was agreed upon that he was out of town Many people had seen him at this conference. So they were working on a timeline and they just basically figured out that there was, they were able to piece it together that it just seemed like it was unlikely that he would have been able to be in Austin and do this and, you know, do this murder and then come back. Initially, no one suspected this. The time of death was estimated to be around, I think it was around two o'clock in the morning. It was in the, you know, dead of night. And Joe, according to his timeline, had uh, spoken to Mickey at about eight or nine o'clock that evening. They had talked about the rain, just, you know, basic conversation about the day. They had said goodnight. Uh, Joe had turned on the Country Music Awards, had watched that, had drifted off to sleep around 11, and had woken up six or seven that morning and gotten ready and gone to uh, the first meeting for the conference that morning. So he was asleep at the time that this murder happened. And so initially, no one really thought much of that. When did things turn against him? So almost a week after this, the Texas Rangers got a call from Mickey's brother, uh, whose name is Charlie Blue. Actually, they got a call from the private investigator who was working with him. Charlie Blue was Mickey's brother, and Mickey and Charlie were not close. But Charlie had come into town for her funeral, and uh, he didn't have any way to get around. So he had asked Joe if he could borrow his car while he was in town. And Joe lent Charlie his car. So Charlie had been driving Joe's car around at that point for four or five days. It had been out of Joe's hands at that point. And Charlie was frustrated, according to his account, with the lack of progress in the investigation So he had hired a private investigator. He did not tell Joe this. Private investigator comes to town. They meet at the Dairy Queen. According to Charlie's account, he and the private investigator, Bud Saunders, went for a drive. While they're driving out in the country talking about the case, they pull over to relieve themselves. They get mud on their shoes. They pop the trunk looking for a towel or something to wipe 
the mud off of their shoes. And when they do, they see a flashlight in the trunk and they see what appears to be blood spattered on the flashlight. Uh, There's a sort of odd series of events that then happens. And I should note that no mud was ever found in the car. No mud, despite the fact that they said they had muddy shoes and right. they got back into the car, presumably drove back. Okay. Exactly. So an inconsistency already. So, and this this uh, clue that sort of breaks open the case is found within an hour of the private investigator arriving in town. Um, instead of immediately calling law enforcement, they go to the Bryan home, which is unlocked because they had uh, there'd been a cleaning crew there. They let themselves in. They spend an undeterminate amount of time there. And then according to their timeline, instead of using the phone there, they go to a pay phone. They call the Texas Rangers and they say, we found this bloody flashlight. And from there, the investigation takes a a big turn. But I'll just say that that story I always found very, very odd. And neither Mr. Blue nor Mr. Saunders would ever speak to me. But they, they both swore and sworn affidavits that this is exactly uh, what happened. So the Texas Rangers are obviously convinced to some extent to buy this. What could they do in this time period with blood? Is it just blood typing at this point? Right. That's exactly right. So 1985, all they could do was type the blood and they typed the blood and it was indeed the same type of blood that Mickey had, however, about 50% of Americans have this type. I mean, yeah. it, it, it doesn't, um, on the one hand, it sounds so terrible, the same type as Mickey's blood. On the other hand, probably half the people uh, involved with this case had the same type of blood. So when that typing happens, at that point, Joe becomes suspect number one. And the idea is there's no other explanation. This must be Mickey's blood. There must be a connection between the two things. There was a bloodstain pattern analyst who was called in to process the crime scene the morning after the crime happened. His name was Robert Thorman. He was from a nearby uh, police department. And so there was someone who had already analyzed the blood at the scene and hadn't really come up with much. That same quote-unquote expert will be called in at Joe's trial, and what he does is he definitively connects the flashlight with the crime scene. He says the way that this blood is distributed on the lens of this flashlight can only have happened in the following way. And he says that the killer had to have been holding the flashlight in one hand and the gun in the other as he approached Mickey and that the blood then spattered in this very particular, distinct way. He basically took what was sort of looked suspicious and tied it all together into one cohesive story. There are all sorts of problems with this, but I'll just say that one of the logic issues I always had was, why would Joe need a flashlight in his own home to do anything? Is the flashlight still around? The flashlight is still in DPS custody today. This flashlight is found in... Joe's car, is that right? Correct. So how, if he didn't do it, how did it get into his car? Joe is as baffled by all of this as anyone. Joe is adamant that the night of Mickey's murder, he was asleep in his bed at the hotel. And as his own attorneys will point out at trial, the fact that, you know, according to the state's timeline at trial, 
that Joe snuck out of a hotel where he knew many of the participants in this convention and no one saw him, then drove 120 miles in pouring rain back to Clifton without anyone in Clifton seeing his car or seeing him, shot his wife, got back in the car, didn't get any blood, no blood is ever found in the interior of the car. This is a very, very bloody crime scene, very messy scene, then gets back in the car, doesn't get any apparent blood on the car or on his clothes or however he would have done that, then drives 120 miles back in the pouring rain, then goes back into the hotel again where he knows everybody and no one, not even like a guard or doorman, anyone ever sees him go back and then pretends everything's fine the next morning is ludicrous. But that is the timeline that the state presented. It was a flashlight from the Bryan home, which remember Mr. Blue and Mr. Saunders had entered. Uh, We know that from their own statements. One of the things Joe told me was that they had a terrible snake problem in their yard, which is common to the area. And they would sometimes have to go out at night. The flashlight had come into play sometimes when they had to kill snakes, which is why they had gotten the gun they had in the house. The gun only had um, pellets in it. It wasn't regular bullets, which was why the crime scene was so incredibly messy. I'm sorry to put it that way, but that is a fact of the case. One theory was, was it possible that this had happened while killing something in the yard? Four shots? Who knows? I don't ever get a definitive explanation of whose blood that is. Uh, that was on the the flashlight. The pellet, is this more destructive or less destructive? It doesn't penetrate as far, but there are multiple different contact wounds, if that makes sense. So it was a horrific crime scene. And because there were pellets involved, there were not the sort of um, typical bloodstains where you might, in ideal conditions, be able to try to trace trajectories of bullets or that sort of thing. This was just a very bloody, messy crime scene. Four shots seems like a lot to me for a robber. For a meek woman who was in bed, let's start with the state's theory about the motive. One thing I've always wondered was whether Mickey heard someone come into the house. She knew Joe was out of town, grabbed the gun, because the gun was Uh, kept by the side of the bed. And just everything I know about her personality, I can completely imagine her not able to actually fire that weapon was it rested away from her and then used on her. These are theories. I, It's just one of many possibilities. One of the interesting things about the case against Joe is that there's never a coherent motive that is expressed by the state What is expressed is a lot of innuendo about how Joe must have been gay. And oh, okay. (laughs) Yes. So this is this is what they come up with, and they're really sort of grasping at straws at this point. So Joe is a very outgoing, effusive person with a big personality. Warm, right? He's a very warm someone who holds your hand when he talks to you. He's a very warm person. And I think one of the saddest things about this case is that sort of the best thing about Joe was turned against him. And this was twisted in a way, you know, he couldn't just have been this warm guy who, yes, he also liked to dress well and a few other things. Um, This meant that he was gay. And there were all sorts of rumors that seemed to have begun with the police investigating the case, not with anyone in the community about this that were completely unfounded. 
And, you know, I've always wondered if maybe there was some stigma attached to the fact that they didn't have children. In the 1980s, small town Texas, the insinuation that a high school principal, someone who's around teenage boys all the time, is gay, uh, it was poisonous. It was completely toxic. And in fact, I, I spoke to a good friend of both Joe, Joe's and Mickey's, who was interviewed during this time, at Susan Kleine, and she told me that when the rangers started asking her, not about anything else, but just about Joe's sexuality, that she became so distraught, and she said, a man's life is on the line. You have to understand how dangerous those words are that you're saying. One of the things that uh, Charlie Blue and Bud Saunders brought to the Texas Rangers along, there was there was sort of this box of stuff that they said they found in the trunk. And Joe never denied that that flashlight was the property of his and Mickey's. But something that was also in that box that he claimed to have never seen before and had no idea what it was, was this... Uh, like Chippendales calendar, which I don't know oh. if everyone remembers what that is, but sort of... Um, I'm guessing everybody here knows. Okay, <laughs> so buff shirtless guys, basically. Was that Joe's and he wasn't being honest? Was that planted? I cannot say. But that calendar became a huge focus. It could have been a gag gift to anybody. So, in fact, that was one of the stories that came out was that Mickey and Joe, in trying to cheer up this woman who had been widowed for quite a while ago and who had talked about how maybe she was going to start dating again, that they had bought this and they were planning to give it to her. I, I, I don't know what the story is, but what I found so fascinating was that there are no facts that it hung upon. It was innuendo. And something I've seen over and over again in wrongful conviction cases is when there aren't the facts, what they rely on is character assassination. And Joe was the sort of unimpeachable person, but they found a way to besmirch him. They could never find lovers. Never. Oh, and they really, really, really tried. <laughs> I can tell you from, I, I finally found all the police reports in the uh, courthouse in Comanche, Texas, and uh, spent a day frantically going through those papers before someone told me to stop. And yes, I can tell you that no stone was left unturned on that front. And every male friend of Joe's was asked point blank about that. And again, you have to remember, just asking that question in 1985, rural Texas, you know, AIDS was just beginning to be in the headlines and there was so much fear. It was just completely toxic. At this point or at any point, did the community begin to turn against him? So this is really interesting. The community, by and large, really, really stuck by Joe. And in fact, I mean, he just had tremendous support leading up to his trial. And people were very, very concerned about him because from what they could see, he was both grieving for his wife and dealing with this legal nightmare. Everyone thought that prosecutor was misguided and this was all going to be straightened out at trial. And something I thought was really interesting about this community and people in Clifton, Texas, especially then, really, really trusted law enforcement. They trusted the criminal justice system. They trusted the courts to get things right. 
And the, the idea that it, that all this evidence would be presented and a jury would not find him innocent was sort of unthinkable. What ended up happening was this bloodstain pattern expert got on the stand and he used all this mumbo jumbo type of lingo to make himself sound like he'd had all this training and he was incredibly knowledgeable. And he tied the flashlight to the scene of the crime and basically said, look, there's this is one and the same. There's no other explanation for how this flashlight could have been there. He didn't do so in quite as direct of a way as I'm saying, so I should make that clear. But he went far beyond anything that even practitioners of bloodstain pattern analysis claim they can do. He said that he could tell from his analysis of the scene that the reason that there was no blood in Joe's car was that Joe had taken the time after supposedly shooting his wife. He had slowly and deliberately taken the time to change his clothes and his shoes before he had left the house. This is one of the things that's never made sense. Is of course, it's very loud when a gun goes off. The houses are fairly close together there. Um, this did occur during a very heavy rainstorm, so that could have softened some of the, the sound. But the idea that, it, that someone would kill someone with four shots... Uh, you know, who's not like a contract killer and then would deliberately take the time to change their clothes and shoes. I just always thought was very, very odd. Yeah, I mean, why would he not just get into the car and go and then change later on? Or, exactly. So no fingerprints on the gun or were her fingerprints on the gun because she owned the gun? There was nothing salvageable that they could use. The only um, material from the house, the only fingerprints, anything, they either could not be read or like on the headstand, there were both of their fingerprints appeared, which you would expect in someone's bedroom. I mean, one of the things that's weird about the crime scene being in your home is, of course, your biological material right. is going to be everywhere regardless. Right. Um, but no, there was nothing usable that they could make any sense of uh, in that way. And unfortunately, many, many, many years later, when DNA analysis was finally performed after a lot of wrangling because the DA's office didn't want to have that done, uh, again, there was just nothing that came out that was of any help. Does Joe cooperate with police when he's arrested? Is there a lie detector? Not that that's worth anything. Joe uh, had already given several statements to them. He's completely shocked that he's arrested. I believe at that point he did what most people do, which is, you know, he got a lawyer and that was the end of that. Um, I don't recall him ever taking a lie detector test. Okay. So he um, goes to trial. He's charged with first-degree murder, I'm assuming? That's correct. Premeditated. They're saying he planned it and obviously chose this weekend, maybe because there's a thunderstorm, definitely because he's scheduled to be in Austin. That the, the being out of town, so what was his greatest asset from the defense's point of view, that he was out of town, the state said, well, this was all deliberate to make it look like he couldn't possibly have committed the crime and that he had made this secret journey. Everybody's constantly seeing whose car is driving down the road. This is a tiny, tiny town. So again, I always just found it so impossible, not just that no one in Clifton saw him, but no one at the hotel saw him coming or going. How could anyone kill her? I mean, how right. is that possible for right. loud shot? I mean, I'm assuming this is as loud as an average gun. Right. So the thought is that because of the thunderstorm, that the shots were not heard. And the theory initially in town before anyone even thought about Joe was that someone had parked somewhere in the area and had been on foot, which I think actually makes quite a lot of sense because 
No one on the street saw anything, but obviously someone had to get into the house. That again makes sense. And if it was someone local, um, maybe there wasn't a car involved at all. Maybe it was someone walking. Then what are they looking for if they're on foot? Is it drugs, money? Unclear, right. I mean, that's- Prescription drugs. Maybe money. Joe and Mickey were extremely uh, generous to students who didn't have anything. And they had helped kids with their lunch money, with uh, you know school trip money. Joe had a nice car. So for the community- they were, I mean, they were not wealthy, but they were seen as, you know, doing pretty well. People who might have money around the house. He goes on trial. He doesn't testify, I'm presuming. He actually does testify. Oh. And, and that does not go well. Mm. And actually, that was a great lesson to me because so many trial transcripts I've read over the years, these are in wrongful conviction cases. I'll always think like, why didn't they just let the defendant testify? It would have been so much better. And this case is actually a great example of how Someone can, I think, be innocent and be a terrible witness. Oh, yeah. He was cross-examined for five hours after he gave his testimony. And he was cross-examined by a very, very skilled special prosecutor who was hired, interestingly, by Charlie Blue, the... Brother of Mickey. The brother-in-law who we've talked about before. This was a lawyer whose skills were far above the local prosecutor. I I wish everyone could read this five-hour cross-examination because it's a a perfect example of how a really skilled litigator can make anybody trip up. He would go over every last detail of the timeline, every last thing Joe had said. Joe would second-guess himself, okay, did I leave at 7.30 or 7.35? You know, all the typical things we would do. And it, it did not go well. The most critical part of the trial was that bloodstain pattern analyst testimony. Back then, as was fairly typical at the time, the defense did not put on its own forensic expert to combat this. And, and that was typical. But What they did was they just tried to tear apart his testimony on cross. The problem is that like so many of these bloodstain pattern analysts, Robert Thorman used this lingo to describe the things that he was seeing that made it sound like he was doing this incredibly complicated science. Unless you really, really understood this or were trained in it, it was hard to make sense of what he was saying. Probably it sounded very impressive to the jury and it was hard to penetrate for defense attorneys. And intimidating to a jury too. I mean, expert witnesses, you know, now you would say you would have dueling expert witnesses. And then what are you to do as a as a jury? They cancel each other out at some point. Exactly. So, you know, many people um, were folks who had ninth or 10th grade educations, who, you know, had farms and did agricultural work. And I'm sure that this all sounded very impressive as it would, I should say, to... Anybody with a college or graduate degree, it's not something that anyone is really familiar with. The jury decided pretty quickly that Joe was guilty. One of the amazing things about this case that I've thought about a lot, this was a very law-abiding community that put a lot of stock in juries and judges and the criminal justice system. And as much as people loved Joe and just could not fathom that he had committed this crime, the fact that 12 people had, to their minds, heard all the evidence, which most people in town hadn't. They'd been doing their jobs, not attending the trial. That 12 people had heard all the evidence and had found him guilty was very powerful. Even among his closest friends, people really took this as proof that he must have done this. There must be things that we don't know, that we don't understand, that we didn't hear 
because these 12 jurors found him guilty. It's just that much faith in the criminal justice system. Right. So he is convicted and I am assuming devastated. Completely devastated. I won't go into all this, but he had to go through a retrial for technical legal reasons. The first trial was in 1987. He's retried in 1989. It's literally like an exact replay of the first trial, except at the second trial, he doesn't take the stand, but they read his testimony to the jury and it has the same effect. And Robert Thorman again testifies about this bloodstain pattern analysis he did. Does he hire a new team or is this the same defense team? Basically just a complete replay of the first trial. Do they talk to you? So many people in this case were dead. So no, I could not interview anybody <laughs> who defended him, unfortunately. Um, and, then, and then his appeals were exhausted very quickly. So really by the early 90s, that was it. What was his sentence? Was it life? It was life, okay. yeah. So when did you enter? So I entered in 2018 and... When I read all of this, I was really interested in the fact that Robert Thorman, the bloodstain pattern analyst, said that his only credentials for being a bloodstain pattern analyst were that he had taken a 40-hour class. <laughs> I did some research and I found that, particularly back then, that that was pretty typical, that if you were testifying in a trial as a quote-unquote expert in this field, you likely had only taken a 40-hour introductory class. In later years, there was the introductory class and then sort of an advanced class that was another 40 hours. So a two-week class and you... One week. One week class, but then if you took the advanced class, it's sure. two weeks. Then you could testify in, would it be a capital case? Could capital case. Somebody's life is in your hands, essentially, if you're the main witness. Right. Robert Thorman had taken a 40-hour class. He had recently taken it. This was his first case he'd ever handled doing this. And so when I really got into, well, what makes this guy an expert? It was not much. And <laughs> he had been trained by a guy named Tom Bevel, who's sort of the the father of modern bloodstain pattern analysis. I had read a lot about Tom Bevel. He's been involved in a number of questionable cases that I've looked at. In addition to being an expert witness, Tom Bevel also has a company that offers these classes to law enforcement. So Bevel had taught Thorman all of this back in 1985. And I realized I could take almost exactly the same class decades later, you know, with a few tweaks. So I went to the very next one that was being held, which was in Yukon, Oklahoma, at the Yukon, Oklahoma Police Department. Paid about $700, thanks to ProPublica. <laughs> thanks, ProPublica. To, to attend this class. And it was me and about 20 law enforcement officers. And by the end of the week, I had the same training as the expert witness in this uh, capital case. It's pretty amazing. The process of taking the class was so mind-boggling. I really wish that any defense attorney trying a case like this could have this experience because a few things immediately were clear. One was, I've mentioned several times the sort of lingo that, that these witnesses used. Um, it was really just window dressing for saying really, really basic stuff, but it embroidered the testimony in this way that made it sound super impressive and super scientific. And so peeling back that was really helpful for me. That was the first thing. The second thing was how incredibly superficial 
these classes were. I mean, these expert witnesses talk on the stand about how this is based on physics and trigonometry. This is deeply rooted in science. And basically what this was, was our teacher telling us to put our phones on the scientific calculator mode and to press this sign button to get this number. And that then we'd arrive at, at our answer. There was no deep understanding of fluid dynamics or any of the things that this really is supposed to be rooted in. And then the third thing that was so disturbing is in 2009, the National Academy of Science came out with a scathing report on the lack of reliability in many scientific disciplines, one of them being bloodstain pattern analysis, and really questioned sort of the whole basis of bloodstain pattern analysis and the claims that it was making. This was not addressed in the class. We were taught that this was highly reliable. And the most dangerous thing that we were taught to do was that based just on this, like no other clues at a crime scene. Think how messy a crime scene is and how rich it is with information. But that just based on the spatters and droplets of blood at a crime scene, that we, with our knowledge that we had gotten in 40 hours, that we could reconstruct crime scenes based on that. So think about what a dangerous idea that is. Even in the best hands, even in the most skilled hands, this is a very uncertain discipline and should involve multiple different things at the crime scene and all sorts of information. And the idea that we would just look at some spatters of blood and be able to say, well, you know, the shooter was standing in this corner and fired in this direction and did this. It just seemed totally absurd to me. But we were asked on the last day, we were taken to two different rooms where blood had been spattered on butcher paper, and we were told to reconstruct the crime scenes based on that, these sort of fake crime scenes. And then, you know, the message at the end of the class was like, go out and get the bad guys. Now, <laughs> now you've got the skills. And I just thought it was terrifying. Probably the most terrifying part of the week was when our teacher told us how to deflect questions about the reliability of this and how to word things in a particular way so that we wouldn't be asked to talk about percentages of error and things like that. Mm. Is the school still in existence? It is still in existence. You can go take this class if you have $700 and are interested. I thought it was very frightening. Really at the end, I just thought, wow, we've had thousands and thousands of law enforcement officers across this country who have taken some version of this class. It's not always taught by Tom Bevel's company. There are various outfits that, that do these classes, but it's the same curriculum. And that these are the quote unquote experts that we hear from. And you think about the average juror, you think about any reporter who has the time or the resources. I'm so lucky to be able to go take a week-long class to understand this. Most people, judges included, are going to take the word of a bloodstain pattern analyst. And what was Tom Bevel's reaction? Uh, he was very nice in talking to me about his work and, you know, expressed adamantly that this is a scientific discipline, that it's been proven numerous times, and that it's been a key component in many important cases. Of course, there are many wrongful convictions that have been connected to this, not as many as uh, things you've already heard about, like bite mark analysis. But there are a number of cases, including cases that Mr. Bevels testified in, that have been uh, wrongful convictions. So in American Sherlock, I 
dig pretty deeply into forensics because, you know, it was about a forensic scientist. And, you know, I mean, what I learned from that 2009 report um, was essentially that any sort of what they call pattern matching forensics is problematic. Having Pam Koloff and I both looking as fingerprint experts at the same fingerprint and we can have completely different interpretations based on our training because we're human, right? And, and forensics formed within law enforcement can be dubious as opposed to things like toxicology and, and uh, DNA analysis, which are still fallible, but at least they are tested in the scientific community. And that's not true with bite mark analysis and fingerprinting and shoe prints. And That's exactly right. That pattern matching is so problematic. And in fact, and I, I hope this isn't too far in the weeds, but I thought it was so fascinating. We were asked during that week of training to do exactly what you're talking about and to identify different types of spatters and patterns. And something that that I noticed that week and I saw this over and over again in wrongful convictions that involved bloodstain pattern analysis is the following situation. You have a pattern of blood that's found on a person who becomes the defendant, a pattern of blood that's found on their shirt. Their story is, you know, I came home or I heard a sound and I found my loved one dead or dying. I rushed to their care. In, in one case in which a man's wife shot herself the man runs in and tries to render aid. Uh, another case where a man came home and found his wife and two children shot. This was a man who'd been at a basketball game with 20 witnesses who had seen him at the basketball game. All of these people end up with blood on their shirt as they've tried to render aid to their loved one. This exact pattern is then said by an expert at trial to be high velocity or medium velocity blood spatter that was caused by a gun being shot. So you have the person saying, I knelt over them. And as I did, you know, I didn't even realize I had blood on me. I just was trying to help them. And then you have an expert saying, there's only one way that this blood could possibly have gotten on the shirt. And it's through a gun being fired. Now, in the case of the man who came home and saw his wife and two children shot, this is a man named David Cam. Tom Bevel testified for the state that the only way that blood could have gotten on his shirt was by a gun being fired. Uh, David told the story that he told. As I mentioned, there were all these witnesses that he had just been at a basketball game. Didn't matter. He went to prison for, I believe, 12 years. DNA testing done much later proved that actually he was not the perpetrator. I won't go into all the details, but it literally proved that this testimony was wrong, that, that he was not the killer and that his story had been accurate all along. And there was prosecutorial misconduct in that case, right? That was, yes, that was a very messy case. In Joe's case, what happens once you get involved? You write this scathing two-part article on, you know, one of the biggest magazines on the planet, New York Times Magazine, in cooperation with ProPublica, and it gets all of this publicity and you're in the media. He's free. The story got a lot of attention. A month after it came out, the Texas Forensic Science Commission completed their investigation. And they said that, in fact, the expert testimony in his case had been incorrect. And so having that come from the Texas Forensic Science Commission uh, was very, very important. Thankfully, the Texas Board of Pardons and Paroles granted him parole in March of this year. It was wow. his seventh attempt to get parole. Joe 
was a model prisoner. This is for after how many years total did he serve? So he first was incarcerated in 1987. He was briefly out and then back in in 1989. So about 31 years behind bars. Are there lessons learned or what did you take away from this story? Don't take anything at face value when someone calls themselves an expert. Because it will ruin lives. It, it can, can take, ruin, and take lives. It can ruin lives. And I think the clearest sign of an ex, a real expert is someone who talks about the limitations of what they can and cannot tell you. Somebody who says, I can tell you X, Y, and Z, but my field, you know, I, I can't go so far as to say this. That sounds like a legitimate expert to me. Someone who comes in and says, I can tell by looking at these markings on the floor that uh, the perpetrator must have changed his clothes and his shoes. That just doesn't make sense. You know, that, that's someone who's overreaching. Yeah. On the next episode of Wicked Words. Firefighters go into the room, break the window, and shoot a hose out. So the hose, basically, that force draws the smoke out. Literally, at some point, one of the firefighters climbs over what he thought was duffel bags, and it turns out to be three bodies. If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 